we're really glad that so many of you could join us today. My name is Beth Hale, I'm a partner at CM Murray and I'm joined today by two other CM Murray partners, Meryl April and Sarah Chilton and we're also delighted to be joined by Catherine Foster from Crown Office Chambers. Catherine's a, an expert in personal injury, she's got a particular expertise in occupational stress and psychiatric injury and we're absolutely delighted that she's um, able to join us today to talk about the personal injury aspects of, of the topic. So what we're going to cover today are expectations on the return to work, what can employers expect of their employees when they come back, what does the guidance say about obligations, then we're going to look a little bit at the employer's health and safety obligations, what obligations do they have to create a safe place of work, what do they need to be doing, um, and the legal risks for employers, what risks are there in, um, in relation to uh, the workplace and exposing and potentially exposing employees to dangerous environments. How can employers encourage compliance with the safety measures uh, and what can they do if, if people don't want to come to work and how can they manage that risk? And we are going to touch at the end on data protection briefly. So um, there's a lot of issues to cover. There's a lot of ground to cover. And I think we'll start. So, Sarah, what can employers expect their employees to do when they first return to work? What are the key things they need to be sort of thinking about and how, how should they be handling the sort of build up to a return to work? So I think the first thing I would say is in relation to this, uh, planning is really important. And it's important for two reasons. Uh, well, probably three reasons. One is uh, much more practical. Uh, the practical one is that uh, supplies of things might run out. So you don't want to be scrabbling around for protective screens and um, you know, uh, tape to mark your floor when everyone else has bought it all up and you have to wait weeks and weeks and weeks to get it shipped. Um, but the two other main issues uh, relate to communication and planning so that you sort of know what's coming and you know what to expect. Um, and I suppose you then need to plan before you communicate. The reason communication is really important is that we are uh, living in a period where uh, we are particularly concerned, I think most of us, about employee well-being. And one significant aspect of that is mental well-being and anxiety. And we are seeing from Boris Johnson's announcement last Sunday, where he suddenly told the nation that they had to go back to work, a massive um, upsurge in anxiety and concerns and questions amongst the workforce and employers. Uh, people are very worried about what going back to work looks like, how safe that will be, what measures employers are going to be taking. But you'll also have the other issue, which for most of, I think, the participants on this call, we have office workers on the whole, and those uh, workers will be particularly potentially worried about staying at home and how long they'll be expected to do that for. You know, we all went home in March and I think a lot of people were hopeful that we'd be back in the office in June. And I think, you know, the announcement of the furlough scheme to extend until October has really sent a strong message to a lot of people that things might not be back to normal until uh, later in the year, if at all, during this year. And that may present some anxiety issues amongst some of your workforce particularly those who perhaps don't have easy home lives or don't have easy work home situations. You know, they maybe don't have a proper setup. They may be living in shared accommodation. So I think communication is really important to try and manage those concerns and those anxieties and asking employees to speak to you about their concerns and anxieties so that you can identify who might be suffering, who might not be coping very well and take appropriate action. So that's a more general point. I think then we get into, well, what does an employer have to think about doing on a more practical level? And I split these uh, kind of issues into a, a few different subsets. So first of all, I think we have the issues about getting to and from work. We then have issues around how do you adapt physically your workplace? Uh, we then have issues around, well, what do you ask of your employees? So that includes things like, do you ask them to wear PPE? Do you ask them to submit to tests and checks? And um, we then have issues around mental well-being. And then finally, we've got sort of strict legal issues around uh, employment law and personal injury risks, which we're going to highlight today. But all of that comes into your risk assessment. So step number two, once you've thought about when you might do things in your communications at, at this stage, is right, well now when we think about when we go back to work, before we can even entertain anyone coming back, we need to do a risk assessment. And that's a mandatory duty anyway, but it's particularly hard and relevant in this current climate. 
Um, and in the context of doing a risk assessment, um, you should be consulting with your employees in relation to that risk assessment. So any proposals and steps that you're planning to take in the workplace to protect their health and safety, you need to consult with them. If you are unionized, that would include uh, participation with the union and employee representatives if you're not, and otherwise individual employees. That doesn't mean to say that you have to do what the employees want or don't want you to do, but it's important to go through that step. But from an employee relations perspective, it means you're much more likely to get buy-in to, in some cases, what will be potentially controversial measures that you're trying to put in place. You know, if you think about asking someone to have their temperature taken or asking someone to wear a face mask all day, not everyone's going to be potentially okay with that, but consulting before you implement these measures will help hopefully in getting proper engagement. And then you need to think about whether or not you publish that risk assessment. So um, the government are encouraging all employers, no matter what size, to publish those risk assessments on their websites. Um, and that uh, will probably be something that employees will be looking at, but also something that procurement uh, issues might come into uh, relevance there. So, you know, people may start to look at whether or not you've got published and adequate risk assessments in the procurement process. Um, I'm not going to go into much detail at all because we've got a lot of really interesting topics to discuss today uh, into the government guidance itself. You will no doubt be aware that they've issued a set of guidance for every sort of type of industry. And um, there are some common themes running through those guidances, but also uh, there are some specific things that relate to specific industries. They are relatively practical in nature um, and they're pretty easy to digest and easy to read. Um, they include things like, in an office environment, for example, no hot desking, no sharing of equipment, taping a two metre perimeter around everybody's workstations so that we can observe social distancing, making sure social distancing can happen. So that applies to all workplaces. And this is the sort of the number one bit of advice from the government is social distancing. So that's around making sure that exit and entry routes can be used in a socially distant manner and um, that people can sit at their workspace in a socially distant manner. I don't know if socially distance is actually a, a proper expression but I've just decided to go with it. Um, and also things like you know if people are working normally face to face then put them side to side or back to back. Uh, other things around you know if you've got people on a construction site can they socially distance? Um, and one of the key issues is if people can't socially distance then do they have to be at work? And if they do have to be at work because their job is critical and the business has to be open, then you only then get into the question around personal protective equipment and PPE and, and what you do there. Um, uh, really simple things like hand washing and uh, hand sanitizer. Um, so that still applies as we were uh, looking at those things before we even went into lockdown. Um, and then um, that's sort of the physical workplace. We then go into things like staggered shifts and hours um you know that's both to deal with the number of people in the office at any one time or in the workplace at any one time but that also deal with, deals with concerns about use of public transport to try and avoid busy periods or make sure that not the whole population of london for example is on the central line at the same time which just cannot be done in a socially distant compliant manner um, and the only thing i would say around staggering shifts and having people coming in is Think about one, whether or not you can make contractual changes to people's contracts of employment. You will need to consult with them around that. Uh, some people may not be happy about it. It may mess up with some people's childcare, for example. So just you know, make sure there's a proper consultation and all the elements that would apply to a normal contractual change would apply to, to this. Um, and we've got a podcast on that. So I'm not gonna go into detail about that in this session, but if you do want more information about how you implement contractual changes, have a listen to that. And then the other thing is just to make sure that aside from the physical risks, um, most of which you'll find information about in the government guidance, think about the mental health risks of any measures that you're putting in place. So, you know, for example, keeping someone at home, we are meant to do that so far as possible for the time being, except if the person's role is business critical and cannot be done at home. But there's also reference to, you know, if someone has an unsafe home environment or circumstances which mean they can't work from home. So their job might allow them to work from home, but their circumstances might not. And those people can potentially go back to work. 
But that brings about a different issue, which is if you have only one person back in an office, uh, you know, in the city of London, which is dead right now, is there a loan working safety issue there? So all of these issues need to be brought into a risk assessment and, and documented. And you need to think about what steps you need to be taking. So the, I think actually the coronavirus risks assessments are almost the more obvious things. You know, that's around the, all the stuff that we've been, it has been drilled into us as uh, members of society for the last and two three months it's actually sometimes the other things around mental well-being loan working so the the kind of knock-on impacts of some of the things you might be putting in place that might get missed and it's really important to remember to think about one thing i should say about the guidance is it's not mandatory and so we're going to come on to talk about um, the legal duties that arise now they are not displaced by the guidance and just because the guidance says do this will not necessarily mean that in every workplace that will be necessary or that will be the most safe thing to do so it i know that probably sounds confusing and in most cases following the guidance will be helpful in demonstrating compliance with the health and safety obligations that you have but the guidance isn't mandatory and the guidance doesn't affect what the law says which we'll come on to discuss thanks sarah that's that's really helpful mel those is there a role do you think here for trade unions in managing those risk assessments managing the return to work in, in unionized organizations um, yes, absolutely. I think um, people will have seen that um, in some sectors where unions are traditionally active, and I'm thinking particularly here of education, um, the unions have been quite vocal, and um, in particular the um, NEU, which I think is um, National Education Union that used to be the NUT, have um, been sort of talking to teachers about whether or not they need to engage in relation to you know, going back to work on the 1st of June for um, reception year one and year six pupils, because as Sarah said, you know, the key piece of advice has been all about social distancing. And although, of course, employers and employees now, as we try to move out of lockdown, are being encouraged to be pragmatic, there's, um, there's a line, isn't there, between pragmatism and expediency. And one can see that um, there are good social policy reasons for children going back to school. But teachers aren't able to social distance. So the unions, I think, um, you know, have been very helpful in uh, giving uh, advice there. And that will be this, this also the case potentially in other sectors. And of course, people can join unions once there's a critical mass of members, unions can apply for recognition. And so it makes sense, I think, for, as Sarah said, for employers to uh, engage whether or not they are employee reps or, or union reps with people and not least of all because sometimes the employer doesn't have all, all the answers you know that you may think well I've heard Sarah and I've listened to all the things she's told me to do and I've read all the guidance but <laughs> you know it might be that um, you kind of miss something from an employee perspective which I think the unions are very experienced of dealing with and um, you know have a lot to contribute so Yes, I think consultation with unions is important. The other thing is, um, you know, they are pointing people to their individual rights. And as Sarah said, we're going to get on to individual rights under Section 44, Section 100, in particular of the Employment Rights Act. But, um, you know, where, for example, in the case of the teachers, there was no time to organise ballots and think about potential strike action. Nonetheless, they've kind of geared people up to be aware of their individual employment rights. Um, the TUC are also talking about enforcement, another thing Sarah um, touched on really, that um, the risk assessments, you know, how, how could they be enforced? Should there be a national body um, as there is with things like um, national minimum wage? Um, so they're quite active there. Um, and they're lobbying for better guidance. I know the government is, is doing what it, what it can, but there's confusing guidance, isn't there, particularly over PPE and face coverings, how effective is it, therefore should it be mandatory? So lobbying for, for better guidance and more, more detail and things mm -hmm. like that. So yeah, I think you, know, you need to uh, obviously take uh, representation of employees very seriously whether it's by union or employee reps and and the more discussion you have I think the better outcome you're going to end up with um, in terms of how to fulfill your legal duty as, as Sarah said we've got lots of guidance but actually what we need to be focused on if we're employers is are we actually 
taking those reasonable steps to provide a safe system of work. And um, again, if you can consult and agree in your particular workplace, what would work for us here is this. It would be mad to have a one-way system or it would be great to have PPE. Whatever it is, I think if you've got agreement and buy-in, um, then that's going to obviously go a long way to people, well, not necessarily getting um, concerned or, you know, a long way to reducing anxiety. People are going to be concerned, but I think it certainly helps if they feel they've been listened to and that things they feel are very important about the way they do their job um, have been taken into account. Yeah, and I think a lot of this comes down to that sort of talking to employees, whether you've got a union or not, just that communication is absolutely vital because... Yeah. Um, for all the reasons that you've highlighted so the mental health issues the sort of making sure that people aren't feeling anxious about coming back to work and there's, mm. important. Just, just to add to that I mean one of the key aspects of the health and safety uh, is that you implement whatever plans and, and steps you take and um, implementing it means and you probably heard us talk about this in the context of sexual harassment policies you can't just have a policy or a rule you have to make sure that it's complied with and one of the best ways to make sure your employees do you want them to do in terms of in a policy is to have made that policy created that policy with their participation because then they're bought into it so it's not just about it's actually about that piece about making sure that people comply which is your duty as an employer as well it's not just about putting in place you know tape on the floor and screens it's about making sure that people adopt all the measures that you are putting in place yeah, and I think we'll come on to that sort of encouraging people to comply a bit more later on as well. We've had a couple of questions in about um, things like taking people's temperature and data protection issues, which we are actually going to cover at the end. So we're not, I, I don't propose to deal with those questions now, but we're not ignoring them. Um, we've had a question in also about um, provision of equipment at home. So for people who aren't working, if we're not going back to the office, Sarah, as you say, till more like the end of the year, what should employers be doing for people who are working from home? I should start by saying that the guidance is very clear that working from home should be the default unless it cannot be done. Um, so I think, yes, there's been a massive uh, news um, circus this week about going back to work and about what people can do and safe, safely going back. But if you are uh, managing employees and they can work from home, you have to keep them working from home. So it's not acceptable to force people back to work. Uh, if it's just not necessary. Um, so that will mean that a huge amount of our workforce will continue to work at home. The, the law on that is no different and the duties that you owe them is no different to what it was when you sent them home in March or February or, or you know, whenever that happened. Or if people have been ad hoc working from home prior to that, you need to make sure that they are safe when they're working from home. So that would include things like a risk assessment of their physical work setup to make sure that there's no potential physical hazards and as you mentioned Beth it also includes mental health and I think and we are going to talk in a little bit about psychiatric injury but um, I think mental health is such a big issue at the moment both in terms of as I mentioned the people who are at home but also the anxiety around people having to go back to work um, and I think you know making all the efforts you can to keep a check on your employees when they're at home is really paramount but it isn't without challenge. I mean, we are not in a situation where you can just look across the office and see whether someone's upset or see whether someone appears to be coping. It's much easier to detect a possible mental health issue or someone who might be struggling with workload or stress or some sort of external factor that's impacting their uh, work or their mental well-being. And if they are physically in the same place as you or if you have regular face-to-face -face meetings, it is much harder to do that when we are all remote working. Um, and I think in that context, you know, one of the key things about keeping people safe from a mental health perspective when working from home is, and it's really obvious to say it, but you know, regular catch-ups, do catch-ups both phone and video so that you can physically sort of see how someone might be presenting. Um, and make sure you put in place systems, for example, you know, have a buddy system whereby someone knows the person they can go to for sort of non-work related issues. So, you know, for well-being issues, uh, you know, if you have, a team, um, say an HR team or a, another sort of, um, sort of employee engagement team, then make sure they're reaching out to people and make sure people know what support's available. So employee assistance programs and that sort of thing. These are all really relevant when people are isolated and at home, potentially. I think it, it's about keeping it real as well though, isn't it? It's, it's about the depth um, and uh, intensity as it were of your culture. I think people are very alert to, oh, someone's rung me up because they've there's someone told them they should or you know it's their it's my yeah. weekly catch-up or something that can seem very false and I think it's about 
really building those deep, deep relationships, albeit remotely and actually care, caring about people and expressing that in an appropriate way. Yeah. So that links us, brings us nicely on to what, what are an employer's duties in relation to health and safety um, what, what in normal times and now and, and are they sort of heightened now? And I was going to um, hand over to Catherine Foster just to talk about sort of personal injury risks here and, and what an employer's obligations are in, in this situation. Yes, well, looking at the employer's duty of care uh, from a personal injury perspective, but trying to relate it to the context that we're talking about today, we, we have to go to the common law because that, that is where the employer's duty of care is defined. It's the same for physical and psychiatric injuries, although the factors that we would take into account uh, in respect of one or the other will differ. Quite particularly, there's no statutory guidance as such on the duty itself, its scope, the standards to be applied. Although there are numerous health and safety regulations that set standards, the breach of which might be uh, considered to constitute evidence of negligence. We also now, of course, have the government recommendations in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. Just, just looking at uh, one set of regulations that are quite topical in that context, the Personal Protective Equipment at Work Regulations 1992. I'll just read out section four because that's highly relevant um, and will be highly relevant to all employers. And that states, every employer shall ensure that suitable personal protective equipment is provided to his employees who may be exposed to a risk to their health or safety while at work, except where and to the extent that such risk has been adequately controlled by other means which are equally or more effective. And I imagine that those regulations are going to be invoked and relied upon in litigation going forwards to quite a large extent. They also import obligations to instruct and train in the usage of PPE. The obvious example here perhaps being face masks to ensure that the PPE fits the relevant employee, to enforce its usage and to maintain and or replace it where necessary. So that's a, that's a, a regulation that will be directly relevant to the issue whether in any particular case an employer is in breach of duty and obviously perhaps in relation to the provision of face masks. But try, trying to bring back the question to what is the duty itself and obviously we have all these nebulous references but no specific definition. The employer's duty is to protect against injuries which are reasonably foreseeable. So in other words another nebulous definition but in practical terms that means that an employer has a duty to identify risks of injury and then having done so to take reasonable steps to eliminate or reduce such risk. So again it's all fact-based fact and contextual. If, if we ask where uh, does the threshold for intervention lie, legal authority would say that that's a balancing act and that the employer has to take into account the type of harm that might ensue from the risk that's been identified. So perhaps here the, uh, the virus, what harm might ensue from the virus? Well, the answer is going to be on the one hand, in healthy employees, no more than flu-like symptoms for a limited period of time. On the other hand, in the case of more vulnerable employees, perhaps the consequences could be fatal. And so that, that in itself is, is a, a difficult balancing act. What should employers be doing to check whether they, their employees have a, an underlying condition if they might or not already know about that? Well, I think the, I think the answer to, to that is we go back to the risk assessment. And so 
we're not going to apply any different principles here because we have a pandemic than we would ordinarily. So we have to go back to basics and to the starting point that there is an obligation and there are a lot of regulations that deal with this point on employers to undertake risk assessments in relation to all of their processes that might give rise to a significant risk of injury. And so, for example, office workers, an employer would be expected to undertake a generic risk assessment in the first instance, probably with reference to the government's recommendations. That ought to be quite straightforward because they're quite prescriptive and detailed. Having applied those recommendations to the employer's own workplace, the courts would then expect the employer to go further and to ask in relation to any particular employees whether they might need additional protection and so questions that might be appropriate to be asked might be do you have any underlying medical conditions that might render you more susceptible to the effects of COVID-19 or is there any reason why you can't and or you don't want to wear a face mask and perhaps they might ask open-ended questions um, asking employees whether they have any particular concerns arising out of the present circumstances. And so there's no clear answer or easy route by which employers can obtain relevant knowledge. But I think that's to turn the question on its head because the standards that are going to be applied by the court are, are, are fairly well prescribed by authority. And the courts will expect employers to be looking out for risks of injury. And so it's not rocket science. I think, as Sarah has alluded to earlier, to, to keep lines of communication open, to ask appropriate questions where relevant, just to understand what problems employees might be facing, whether at home or in office circumstances, and digesting all that material to come to common sense conclusions as to who might be being affected, perhaps some more than others, and then to take steps as appropriate to seek to alleviate such concerns. And so as Sarah mentioned, risk assessments in relation to home environments are probably just as important as those in relation to office environments. And on the return to work of employees in the near future, it might be appropriate in certain circumstances for employers to undertake return to work interviews as they perhaps would traditionally do when employees return from periods of sickness, even though they have technically been working through the lockdown period, the return to the office environment might, might be considered to be sufficiently different in terms of the change in landscape to justify such steps being taken. It, it's all about taking reasonable steps from a common sense perspective to identify employees who might be in difficulty, who might be facing particular risks, and who might, more than others, need additional support. So would it be helpful if I just gave you, from a personal injury COVID-19 perspective, perhaps several categories in which I anticipate we might be seeing claims in the future? Yeah, I think that'd be really helpful. Thank you. I think it's quite straightforward. Um, we're looking at psychiatric injury and physical injury. In relation to psychiatric injury, we're looking at occupational stress caused by working at home we can all imagine that that could be quite a fertile ground for claim of personal injury firms going forward we're looking at stresses arising upon the return to the workplace in relation to physical injuries obviously we're looking at employees who might contract the virus in an office environment we've already covered that point and i think more interestingly we're perhaps looking at accidents in the home or perhaps employees developing conditions that are more traditionally associated with office workplaces, but which might now start to develop in home environments. And so I'm thinking, for example, of upper limb type disorders, uh, back injuries, back injuries being aggravated by ergonomically unsound working conditions. And I imagine that's going to give rise to a lot of litigation about whether the home environment is technically a workplace for the purpose of the regulations and such like. And I 
would expect people who perhaps are having accidents in the home whilst they're working to be making claims in that context, which might at the moment sound quite bizarre. In other words, the proposition that an employer might be liable for such accidents, but one can quite easily see courts finding that they are. And so it's probably going to be very important for employers not only to ask about the well-being of employees in their home environments, but also, again, as Sarah alluded to earlier, to make ergonomic assessments and to make sure that people have appropriate equipment and machinery and the tools and the wherewithal to do their jobs at home without coming a cropper. Meryl, do you, do you think there are any disability discrimination risks um, arising out of those questions so around the sort of employer knowledge yes i mean i think actually quite a lot of overlap with what catherine said obviously there are some people who make their conditions uh, known and then uh, a duty springs up to make reasonable adjustments for those people who you know have um, disabilities um, and in the covid19 context obviously in the government guidance we now know there are lists of people who are um, thought to be extremely vulnerable people and they're likely to be disabled um, under the definition in the Equality Act. Um, and then there are also vulnerable people who you know, are, are less vulnerable than the extremely vulnerable, but also probably likely to be disabled. And also people who are not in either of those lists who might well have protection under the Equality Act from disability discrimination. And I think you know, along the lines that Catherine's been saying as well, one can anticipate the types of claims that will arise and lots of arguments about what is or isn't a reasonable adjustment having regard to that person's particular disability. And I think what's really important to remember there is that it's very case specific because any measures that you put in place to uh, try to take away the disadvantage caused to the person by their disability need to be ones that are effective and need to be ones that um, work you know for that person and address their problems so whereas one can have a list of things that you might consider in terms of travel on public transport um, in terms of um, staggered work times and so on it may be that none of those things are actually adjustments that are um, worthwhile in relation to that individual so again it is about that flow of information and uh, the same rules apply as, as outside of COVID-19. You want to get um, input as you would normally from GPs and from occupational health. But to your point on knowledge, Beth, if people absolutely refuse to reveal information about themselves, then obviously the employer's duty does not, is not engaged because if they don't know, um, then they cannot uh, go through that process of looking at reasonable adjustments. I think another particular area for uh, COVID-19 relates to people who are still shielding. I know the government uh, guidance has changed on that, but there are people who will still want to want to shield, and um, those people are not going to be able to be compelled to come into work because if they suffer from a disability or they are living, you know, with someone or in contact with people that have a disability. There's a potential for a liability to arise under Section 15 and discrimination arising in consequence of someone's um, disability would also obviously be unlawful. Thanks, Meryl. Catherine, just coming back to something that you said earlier about PPE and the obligation to provide PPE. Um, so the government guidance suggests largely that outside of the healthcare setting, you wouldn't necessarily provide PPE to workers. So you wouldn't be expecting people to wear masks in the workplace, for example, ordinarily. Do you think that that duty, the, the, the statutory duty that you've talked about would trump that? So it's a difficult question. Again, there's no, um, there's no straightforward answer to that. It's, not a, it's a regulation, so it doesn't give rise to a cause of action per se, but it okay. will be used by the courts as a standard which if breach might establish negligence. But it doesn't say that you have to provide face masks. It says you have to provide suitable personal protective equipment okay. if, if, if the risk hasn't been adequately controlled by other means. So for example, if we have an office environment where the desks are squashed up and there are people sitting close to each other, perhaps coughing and spluttering, then that might be a situation where if, if the employer is insisting on that 
situation continuing, face masks might be required, but it will, it will involve an evaluation by the employer of what means can we take to control the risk that we've identified. So if the risk is, obviously it's the virus, if the workforce are all healthy, no one's disclosed any underlying uh, conditions, if they're all sitting neatly spaced at two metres and you've got toilet rotors and coffee machine rotors in place and what have you, you're not going to need face masks. If, on the other hand, you've got one person in there who perhaps is vulnerable, who cannot work at home, who does not want to work at home, that person might need or request a face mask. I don't really understand the science as to whether they work or not, but just hypothetically speaking. So it's all about evaluating and making sure that you're able to justify any conclusions you've reached about how you've decided to implement your safety precautions. And if you can rationalise and, and evidence why you've done what you've done, then that ought to be considered to be reasonable enough to meet the standard. Also, in, in some of those scenarios that you've, Catherine's just outlined, you, you would be concerned as an employer about whistleblowing claims because um, if there are people sitting close together coughing and spluttering, even if you've put all those pr uh, provisions in place, there could be an individual who has what they would consider to be a reasonable belief and there'll be arguments and litigation about that, I'm sure, because as Matthew mm -hmm. said, if you have put all those things in place and documented it and communicated it, would it still be a reasonable belief that there is um, a breach of a, of a safety obligation or, or some other legal obligation? But I'm sure that, that there will be claims like that arising where people say, oh, there was a lack of scope or the... Or the you know, PPE was not, not right, it didn't fit, it wasn't good enough. And if they communicate that to their employer or even go um, externally to the health and safety executive, then obviously that's the basis for bringing uh, a whistle, whistleblowing claim uh, yes. condition. And so I think that's another risk for employers to be alert to. Meryl, you're talking about reasonable belief, which I understand to be an employment law-based concept. Mm. In, mm. in health and safety, personal injury cases, the employer's belief is entirely irrelevant. It's, it will be an objective standard. Ob obviously, there are some subjective elements to that. But it, it, if an employer is convinced and has what, for the employer, is a reasonable belief in the merits of what he or she is doing, that's not, won't pass muster. If actually, objectively, it isn't. So from a personal injury point of view, it's an objective standard. I just wanted to, so I just quickly, because in relation to psychiatric injuries, we've all talked about tangible factors, but I just wanted to say, for those of you who perhaps don't practice in personal injury law, occupational stress claims have a number of themes and they tend to arise where employees don't have control over their circumstances, where there are dysfunctional relationships going on at work and where people are and or where people are overworked so it's it, it occurs to me that people working at home at the moment who whilst they might otherwise have been able to escape the unwanted attentions of particular colleagues or managers whilst at work by going home can't do that now and they might be suffering in silence in that sort of context also perhaps employees are working too many hours because they're trying to justify their existence to avoid redundancy or furloughing and everything takes longer as we know to do in a remote context so i think there are a lot of intangible uh, issues that are actually far more difficult to pin down by asking questions but which are always uh, always loom large in occupational stress litigation that's really helpful thank you um so I think just moving on to the sort of employment aspects of this and one of the questions that we've been seeing a lot and it's got a lot of publicity in the in sort of in the media as well is what if an employee says actually I'm not coming into work I don't think it's safe I don't think it's safe for me to go on the tube I don't think it's safe for me to come into the workplace I don't think the employer is putting in place sufficient protections for me what are the options available there and what are the protections um, both for the employer and the employee in those circumstances. And if I can come to you, Sarah, just to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this is probably the most asked question of the week um, in terms of in news outlets and things like that. So um, essentially, um, an employer, as we've discussed, has certain duties to make the workplace safe. 
Um, and if they can effectively make it safe, then the employee would struggle to refuse to come to work. Um, but there is some legislation in the UK which protects employees. And it's important to note that they are just employees. So in this context, we're not talking about workers. Uh, there may be some sort of more complicated legal arguments that people might be able to say workers should be protected in this way, but the law is, is just employees. So notably for professional services, for example, that means that it applies to your staff, but not your LLP members. Um, and it's a law that essentially protects those employees in circumstances where they either raise a health and safety concern or they leave the workplace or they essentially don't come to work because they're seeking to avoid a danger um, that they see in the workplace um, and it protects them from being dismissed and it protects them from suffering a detriment and detriment can include for example not being paid um, but it could also include things like uh, being treated adversely or being demoted or being disciplined um, and the law requires two main components so the employee uh, well, first of all, there must be some sort of unsafe working practice. And um, that's step number one, because then the employee must um, reasonably believe that there's a serious and imminent danger to their safety. Now, that reasonable belief will never arise in a circumstance where there is no danger in the workplace. So, you know, if, if an employer has taken all reasonable steps and has genuinely eliminated the risk, then it will be very hard for an employee to make any successful argument that they have a reasonable belief that the danger that they perceive is serious and imminent. But there will be a number of circumstances in which, for example, an employee may be able to meet that test. So if there is a danger, the employer says, well, that's kind of reasonable, I think you should just suck up that risk. The employee might genuinely perceive that danger to be serious and imminent to them. Um, and uh, one particular topical area that's come out this week is around traveling to and from work. Now, there is some uh, law that supports the idea that if an employee is in a position of danger and that they reasonably believe that danger to be serious and imminent on their journey to work, they can refuse to attend work and then be protected from suffering a detriment or from being dismissed. Um, it's very difficult for employees, though, to know um, what the outcome of their actions will be, because the ultimate arbiter of whether or not the employee had this reasonable belief that there was a serious imminent danger will be the employment tribunal. And for any employee at the moment thinking, I don't want to go to work because it's not safe, if the employer says, well, we think we've done everything and we think it is safe, so if you don't come, you're not getting paid, that employee is left in a pretty invidious position whereby their remedy only comes sort of a year, 18 months down the line, potentially from the employment tribunal. Um, so it's a difficult thing for employees to do. And I think just picking up on what Meryl was saying earlier, that's one of the reasons we've seen um, such engagement with the unions, because they are really pushing hard to make sure that employees don't have to go to work in unsafe circumstances. And they have identified that employees are in a vulnerable position because they might have the right to withhold their work and the right to not go under the law, but if their employer decides to not pay them, exercising that right is a pretty difficult and potentially um, lengthy uh, thing for them to do. Um, and the issue of travel to and from work is probably one of the most common for office environments because you know once we eventually do get back into the office environment we should pretty well be able to control so things like social distancing and um, screens and two meters around our desks and things like that but in London how will we ever ensure that people can social distance on their way to work it's really difficult and so I think from a practical sense I think employers need to be thinking about um, you know if employees are raising these concerns to them you know what can they put in place to alleviate these concerns because rather than you know either have a dispute 18 months down the line as to whether or not it was or wasn't safe much better to resolve these issues between employer and employee and that's where you get into things like split shifts offering people the flexibility to come in at different times uh, thinking about whether you have a bike to work scheme or want to set one up to help people with cycling to work obviously not everyone will want to cycle not everyone will think that's safer than getting on the tube it depends how competent they are on the roads um, and not everyone will have live so close that they can but you know it's something to think about so yes i mean in essence the question it, that's always asked is can an employee refuse to come to work if they think it's not safe in theory the answer is yes they can and they've got legal protection to do that but it's always going to be fact sensitive as to whether or not it was reasonable for them to form the belief that the danger that they uh, thought was in the workplace was serious and imminent. Um, and that will always depend on what steps the employer has taken, what the environment looks like and what their journey to work looks like.
obviously if you require people to come into work that is a provision criterion or practice which it may be harder for some categories of, of employees to comply with um, and so you need to be alert to your indirect uh, discrimination risk there and I think one category that it's, it's difficult for is people with childcare responsibilities which I think probably is still typically more likely to be the woman than the man although that is changing so you know, women whose children are not in school or not able to go to school and who are required to come into work, that causes problems. And I think it comes back to a theme of our, of our Zoom in our today really about understanding your employee on an individual basis and consulting and seeing what you can do, reminding them of all the ways that they can legitimately take leave, um, uh, dependent care leave, which obviously has quite limited circumstances but that needs to be thought about parental leave other forms of leave using holiday but then eventually when you run out of leave you know talking about ways in which you can uh, perhaps alter working hours or make other arrangements to enable um, people with childcare responsibilities who would find it harder to come into work to actually be able to continue with their jobs obviously if someone unreasonably refuses and you've you've tried everything Ultimately, that could, as Sarah said, be a, a disciplinary issue, but I think it is about exhausting all avenues, communicating, understanding people's personal circumstances to avoid potential discrimination claims. Just to add on the childcare point that it is possible to use the furlough scheme um, to deal with people who can't work due to childcare reasons. So it's an obvious answer if you are struggling with these issues with your employees. If the employee, you know, they might want to do that, they might find that yeah, a better alternative absolutely. than trying to juggle things so do you think about the availability of that scheme which has been extended to october yeah i was just about to say that as well and i think when we're not going into any detail on the furlough scheme today that would be the subject of a whole webinar in and of itself but um it is worth thinking about for, for people who can't come into work or who have for example yeah, childcare issues so in terms of encouraging compliance sarah what what can employers be doing to encourage their employees to come back to the workplace to, um, to and to comply with the sort of safety measures when they're there? So I think number one would be to have a policy in place that uh, sets out the expectations of employees, the responsibilities of the employer, uh, the responsibilities of the employees in terms of, you know, this will not work if the employer just says don't do this and the employees don't take those responsibilities on themselves. You know, as an employer, you can't police every single person that walks up and down a corridor making sure they stay two metres apart. So uh, you need an, a policy that sets out the, uh, the expectations, the rules, and then you need to make sure you implement that policy properly. Now, that means uh, mainly two things. One, train your employees on what that means. So introduce it in consultation with them, as we discussed, but also make sure that they are fully aware of what it means, what's expected of them, answer any questions they might have, and give regular updates on it. You know, don't just introduce it once, um, particularly in the current climate where things will evolve and change and where conflicting things might be in you know, the media or the government might alter their guidance. I think regular update sessions with employees will be important to monitor uh, compliance. And the other thing it, uh, implementation means is just that is monitoring. So make sure that you, you know, train your employees on what you're expecting of them, but also check your policy is working and check it that people are complying with it. Um, and then um, obviously think about what measures you can take, uh, which I think Meryl's just going to touch on in, in relation to, you know, if there's non-compliance. Yeah, so Meryl, what, what should they be doing if there is, if people aren't complying? <laughs> okay, well, I, I mean, obviously, I think you you need to take them on one side and, and talk to them uh, initially in an informal way, and then perhaps going into more formal disciplinary measures, because if that has been adopted as the rules or the culture or the practice of your workplace and people are failing or refusing to comply, that needs to be investigated and potentially sanctions imposed. Um, so that I think on, on the negative side, on the positive side, I think you need to lead by example. And I, I, I would like to emphasize again, I think the importance of um, communication and um, maybe the old fashioned suggestions boxes or, you know, if it's survey monkeys or I think, you know, it's, it's, it's important to understand that the people actually doing the job um, might have insight and um, ideas. And, and you need to make sure there's a flow that goes um, bottom up as well as top down. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, you've talked about communication and I think that's really, really important. And there's a real sort of culture shift to happen, isn't it, that, that needs to take place in terms of everyone's expectations of the workplace and, and how how it works and you know, I think that there will be this isn't going away and we're not going to just sort of go back to the go back to the old normal very quickly so I think it's really important that that culture shift is driven from the top and um, and sort of managing expectations um, we, I'm very conscious of the time we've not got very long left and we still have the massive topic of data protection to cover so I don't I, I think we will keep it very short but a lot of questions have been yeah. asked about things like can you require employees to uh, to be have their temperature taken on the way into the office can you disclose to other employees when one person has symptoms of of COVID-19 can and, and what are the data protection issues so Sarah I just wonder if you give us some sort of practical tips for employers on that issue yeah so uh, I think you start off by saying that health data in relation to employees will be special category data under the data protection legislation. So that essentially is personal data, which most people might be familiar with. So that would be data about somebody. But special category data is that sort of other level of data that's more sensitive. And it used to be called sensitive data. Um, and so that would include health data and sort of um, certain other data around people's personal lives, for example. So we are dealing with that heightened obligation that employers have in relation to this type of data, which um, essentially, to, to put it really basically, basically, it means you need to just take more care and be more cautious about how you know about storage and about processing of it and about who you can share it with than you might with other data that's not to say you can disregard other data but this is just particularly heightened risk um, so the first question that we typically get asked and we've had a few questions on this is around can you ask someone to disclose their symptoms to you if they have coronavirus and I think um, everything that we look at in this context is well is it reasonable to expect someone to give you that information and then are you in a position whereby you can justify the holding of that information and the using of that information and that comes down to whether or not you've got a legitimate and lawful basis for doing that and protecting the health and safety of the wider workforce would we think fall within that um, legitimate and lawful basis. So I think, yes, you can ask someone to disclose the symptoms to you. Um, it will become difficult if someone say refuses and you then need to potentially take disciplinary action. I think you can potentially think about that and aspects that you need to consider is whether or not the asking of it was a reasonable request of the employer. And I think in the current circumstances when what you're seeking to do is protect the wider workforce from what is a, a global pandemic and what the government and um, who uh, have identified to be a sort of imminent danger to everyone's well-being, I think it would be reasonable to ask someone to tell you and to keep you updated as to whether they have symptoms or whether they're living with people with symptoms. It also is fundamentally uh, in compliance with what the government want those people to do as well. So I think that's helpful. And um, so that's, you know, asking people. The next question is, once you've got that data about someone either having symptoms or living with someone with symptoms, what do you do with the data? Can you tell other people that that person might sit next to or might have been on an assignment with or might have been in a vehicle with uh, in the last, say, seven days or, or 14 days? And, and again, that's about, you know, you're taking someone's personal data and you're giving it to someone else. Um, now, the answer to that is yes, you can, but you have to do only what is necessary to meet that protection of everyone else's health threshold. And so that will often not involve you telling someone else or the wider workforce who that person is, but just that they have been in contact with someone who has symptoms or who is self-isolating. Um, now, they might be able to work it out in certain limited circumstances, but usually it will not be necessary to tell someone uh, the, the name of the individual. And usually, let's say you're, you have multiple different sites, it will not be proportionate to send an email to all sites to say that one person within one site had it, if in fact those other sites just don't need to know that information. It's not relevant to their own health and safety. Um, so that's to do with sort of sharing of data. I'll quickly touch on temperature checks and uh, coronavirus tests because they're the other two common issues. Um, and then we'll very quickly just say a couple of words about the tracing app. So coronavirus tests are quite invasive. The closest thing we have in our case law to date really is around drug and alcohol testing that we ask employees to undertake. It's very difficult to justify drug and alcohol testing of employees. It's considered to be very invasive uh, for employees. And I think it would be uh, pretty difficult to ask an employee to take a coronavirus test and, and be compliant with your duties. Um, I think one, there's um, data privacy issues, but also I don't think it would amount to a reasonable instruction of the employer to ask an employee to undertake that type of test. 
Uh, that is not necessarily going to be the case if, for example, you run a care home or a hospital, because I think those considerations are different. And if we look at the case law around drug and alcohol testing, we see those analogies. So if you, for example, have pilots in your workforce and you're putting them in the air for transatlantic flights, you may be able to do a breathalyzer test for them, because that's obviously a proportionate way to keep people safe. But I don't think you can subject your employees on a general basis to coronavirus tests, Temperature checks are slightly different because they're not as invasive. And I think there is an argument to say that you could screen temperature of people entering the workplace and in an, as provided you were doing it in a non-invasive way. So using particular types of um, uh, equipment that didn't, you know, invade the person's privacy. So not the ones that go in your ear, not the ones that go in your mouth. Um, I'm not a thermometer expert. Um, and I think what you need to do, though, is think carefully about how you record that data. And arguably, you don't need to record it. You might just screen someone every day, not even know who that person is, not connect the, the outcome of the screening with their name. And I think that's a much safer and proportionate way to go about it, because then you're not recording the data about that person. So you're not then into the difficulties as to what you do with that data. And very finally, tracing apps. A lot of and people have asked us if they can make their employees sign up to tracing apps. Um, I think there's divided um, thoughts on this. And what we're really hopeful is that the Information Commissioner's Office will give us some guidance. And I have reservations about whether you could, and it comes down to, I don't think it's necessarily a reasonable request of an employer to make one of your employees sign up to a tracing app when there are documented and well-reported data privacy concerns with the app itself. I think if the concerns about the app were lessened, it may shift the balance and make the request more reasonable. But I think at the moment, with the concerns that we have about the app, I don't think that's necessarily going to be a reasonable request. I think the employee could probably reasonably refuse on the grounds of their data privacy concerns about the app itself. Thanks. I think that's, um, yeah, the, the data protection issues, as, as I say, are, are sort of multiple and complex, but I think that's a, that's a really helpful run through the, the key issues that employers need to be thinking about. So a couple of questions we've had. Firstly, where a company has operations in different jurisdictions, um, how do you deal with sort of consistency of approach? And Sarah, do you want to just sort of briefly cover that one thing that's unique about this in a way is that in fact the the actual health risk is the same so you know the science on on coronavirus is the same no matter where you are in the world so you would hope that that would mean that in fact a lot of the measures that employers need to take to protect the health of workers would actually apply across multiple jurisdictions and there's not going to be radically different approaches it's very different to for example when we think about other uh, things um you know for example, redundancy projects across jurisdictions, the laws on that vary dramatically between different countries. Um, so you would hope that the practical things employers need to do would be similar, um, but obviously there will be different thresholds in terms of what governments and lawmakers expect of individual employers in different countries. And what I'd say is you need to have um, you know, a good overview as to what your most highest threshold is. So you know, uh, if you want consistency across all your um, areas of operations, then arguably you're going to have to go with uh, the country that makes you do the most um, in terms of health and safety protections and then you know, implement more than the minimum standard in those places that uh, allow you to do less. Um, albeit though, taking local advice to make sure that by doing less, or sorry, by doing more, you're not actually inadvertently breaching things. And one obvious thing is that sometimes by doing more, as we've probably just discussed, uh, to protect health and safety, you could actually be infringing individual rights. Um, so, you know, in certain countries where there are greater focus on individual rights rather than, you know, broader health and safety concerns, you just have to be cautious about that. Um, so I think it, it, it's, a, it's impossible to have potentially the same approach everywhere because laws will vary. But I think um, thinking about all the practical things, you would hope you could have a pretty consistent approach throughout your operations. Thanks, Sarah. Another question we've had is um, what about if there's a another lockdown in the near future so people you get people back to work people come back to work they're all settled into the office the government announces another lockdown because there's a spike in cases Meryl I don't know if you had any thoughts on what employers should be doing to prepare for that uh, just a very simple one really I think that, that we can anticipate uh, that there could be a, a further lockdown so obviously you need to be cautious in your mes messaging and not set up expectations about um, the new normal being a, a permanent thing. It, it may be a temporary new normal. So I think if you're looking at um, policies or you're looking at planning, you always need to keep, keep things flexible and keep things with a bit of a light touch for now until we have further information. 
the companies that have come out of this initial lockdown the best the employers that have the ones that were planning for it in advance and had home working sort of set up rather than suddenly having to do it on a, on very short notice learning the lessons of the of the first yeah. lockdown and yeah. you know taking steps to put them into practice for, for a subsequent absolutely. one would be an obvious answer yeah absolutely and I, I think many employers will be in a better position because they will already have set up their employees for home working they will have already carried out those sort of so hopefully you know if we do have to go into another lockdown employers will be better I mean, although having said that not wishing to end on too negative a note obviously if if actually at the planning board level you you realize that a second lockdown would actually kill off your business and you need to be looking at redundancies then there's a different kind of planning involved isn't there in terms of numbers and thinking ahead about collective consultation appointing reps and so on so you know there are i guess it's different for different businesses but there's a lot of data out there now about um, small businesses and how many will actually re recover and, and you know, potentially two quarters of technical recession. So, you know, if, if actually you do know that you may not survive and you have to close your business and make redundancies, you need to plan for um, redundancy or think about different types of insolvency and talking to insolvency practitioners and other aspects come into play, which obviously too complicated to go into in, in the last minute. but you know, those kind of areas which we, we've also talked about elsewhere on, on our website and in other um, situations. Thank you. So I think that is all from all of us. Thank you so much to Catherine for joining us and to Sarah and Merrill for their really um, excellent insights into what issues employers are facing. If anyone does have any further questions do feel free to get in touch via our emails. So thanks very much for coming. Do send us questions and have a lovely day.